I'm Moritz. How are you? Hey, Enrico. Cold. Yeah, I yeah. caught a back. You got bad a cold. cold. Yeah, I'm super slow today. And I don't know. I need to go ba back to bed soon. Are you gingerized? I'm probably gingerized, but um, okay. it doesn't doesn't yet work. <laughs> I'm hoping for tomorrow. <laughs> yeah, it's it's in the middle of summer and I have a cold. It's sort of a it's the German German do? effect, Germany effect, or what? Yeah, I don't know. I've I've even been away from the kids, so I cannot blame them. So I don't know. Okay, <laughs> it's been pretty cold, and I've been like traveling a bit. So who knows? So here in New York is not too bad actually. It's a little windy, but we have had quite a few nice days, finally. It's so much better. Are you preparing now. for it's the so three weeks better. of summer? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, come on. <laughs> so, what's up for you, Enrico? Yeah. What are you doing? I'm okay. The semester just ended a few days ago. I had a fantastic set of projects from my students. Uh, hopefully, I'm going to show something on the web. Yeah, you should soon. do some gallery or... or yeah, 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 yeah. I'm a little... I'm, I'm very impressed, actually, compared, especially compared to last year. I think I made a few changes that had a big impact. Mm -hmm. And one of these changes is I, I forced everyone to use D3. Okay. And uh -huh. I have to say that the result is, is amazing. Mm -hmm. So I don't know how much it depends on, on D3 itself. Or maybe that just I got luck, lucky this year and I got a lot of good students. But the difference is outstanding. outstanding. That's good to hear. Yeah. What are you up to? Yeah, I mean, we, we had a lot of work now with the, the May updates for the OECD side. So that's like three or four different pulled out. Oh, yeah, yeah we're still in the process of rolling that, side, that yeah. out. And now it's more um, teaching, traveling, speaking, doing fun projects. I plan. But I can't like talk about the running projects. So it's a bit of in between. So before we start with our special special guest, Very special. Uh, I just want to <laughs> I oh, <laughs> a little bit of suspense. Um, I just want to give a brief announcement about. So you guys should know at this point that there is a the Vis conference in Paris this year. That's VIS 2000, IEEE VIS 2014 for the first time in Europe. And I've been asked to advertise the art program. I guess some of our listeners might be very much interested in that. That's going to be, I don't think there is one specific day, but you can submit your art to, to VIS. I will send, uh, we will post the URL in the in the in our usual blog post, and I think it's really interesting because it's a it's a interesting attempt to have some art in in the context of this mainly academic conference, and I think it's a nice initiative. So if you are curious about it, just make sure to click on the link and see what what's about. Okay. Um, should we start? Absolutely. Okay. So mm. our special guest today is Jared Thorpe. Hi, Jared. How are you? Hey, I'm great. Thank you. Finally, we have a, a, a real guest that is able to talk about art. So I think we were speculating on the fact that we never had a guest who talked exclusively about art. So we are so happy to have you on the show. Although Ben Schneiderman spent like half of his podcast talking about his tree map art. So <laughs> I think that, that was a good starting point. Yeah, this doesn't mean that we didn't talk about <laughs> art so far, but we did have a, a special guest who was all exclusively about art, right? Or with such a strong bent towards art, which is really good. 
So, um, Jeremy, as usual, we ask our uh, guests to introduce themselves. So do you want to spend a few words about who you are, what you do? Yeah, sure. Um, so I'm Jared Thorpe. I'm, uh, I'm a co-founder of a studio in New York City called the Office for Creative Research. Uh, I'm an adjunct professor at ITP, which is a master's program at NYU in New York City. And I'm a data artist, I guess. I mean, I, I, I probably would turn that phrase around and say that I'm an artist who uses data or an artist who engages with data. But for maybe for the for this the sake of generating some argument, I can say that I'm a data artist. Uh -huh. <laughs> Good. So do you call yourself data artist or somebody else attached this label to you? Um, it depends on who I'm talking to, I think. You know, I often lately use that phrase just to be kind of provocative because I think it's, if you tell somebody you're a data artist, very few people just go, oh, okay. You know, every, <laughs> everybody has a reaction of some kind, you know, they, they, they are, uh, you know, on the spectrum of curious to angry, depending on who they are. Yeah. And, uh, and then, so that can be a really useful tool to, 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 to get a response from people or, it's it's something that people haven't really heard before, so it's, it's a nice way to introduce yourself. Yeah, this is something that really fascinates me to some extent because there are so many people who are so much against these artistic kind of things. <laughs> the the data visualization purist, so to speak. Right. And it, it, I find it really weird. So do you want to talk, do, do you have your own definition of data art or art visualization art or whatever? I mean, well, I mean, I think there's a <clears throat> there's a couple of things that you just said there. Uh, I, I think that when I think about broadly data art, I, I don't I don't really focus on visualization. I think that data art can be, you know, pretty visualization, which is I think the thing that first people think about when they think about data art. They're like, oh, the, those are visualizations that look really good. Visualizations but, without but labels. That's really, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, I think that's only a really small slice of the possibility spectrum. And, and, and well, I teach a class at ITP called Data Art. And, and there, we really generally are saying about art and artists that engage with data in some way. So that could be through the generation of visualizations, but it could also be through the writing of algorithms. It could be through collection of data. It could be through performance of data. It could be through, you know, there are many, many options there for an artist to, to, to connect with not only the output of the data cycle, but also the input of it and the, the midpoints It's it's a really as I think most of the listeners probably are are really aware of. There's a lot of different pieces of our of our human engagement with data, and and I think that artists can get into those pieces in all kinds of different ways. And for some people, the interesting thing maybe may very well be to make some kind of beautiful data artwork that they could put up on their wall, like that piece behind Moritz. Um, Or, or it could be, uh, it, it could be, it could be something completely different. You know, the contemporary art dialogue is for the last hundred years has really not been about objects and has been more about about practice and concepts and ideas and questions and and so I, you know, there's there's so many answers to the question of yeah. what is data art and 
And that, I think that's one of the exciting things about teaching this new class is that it, it, in many ways it's pretty fresh territory. And so there are, there are a lot of places where we can try and fail at new things. That's really interesting. So how, how do you teach data hard? Where do you start from? Is it more of an attitude or there are some, some specific rules that you can follow? Well, so I'll tell you how I teach data art, and then I don't yeah. know how that's how you should <laughs> sure. how you should do it. So um, my class was broken into four sort of mini semesters, and so we we talk about um, first data and aesthetic, and then second um, uh, text and archive, and then third uh, place and space, and then fourth about ethics and responsibility and connection with humans. So in each one of those four semesters, we we start with kind of a survey of what's been done. So in the aesthetic one, that's probably the easiest because there's hundreds and hundreds of pieces that we can look at. Yeah. And then as we get further through the course, it becomes harder. You know, by the time we get to the end, it's like, oh, here's three projects <laughs> that I can show you. And then um, and then it was really important for me to bring people into the classroom that are actually doing this stuff. So. Um, this term I had um, uh, Luke Dubois and Ben Rubin oh, and um, yeah. and uh, and uh, Josh Begley and Heather Dewey Hagberg and Barack Arakan all in to um, talk to the class. When I think all of those people are artists who have a kind of data practice, and so so it was a good chance for the students I think to also ask some questions and for me to ask some questions because I don't really know how to how to completely define this thing and i don't think anybody really does but but um it, it was it was a really great i thought it was a really great term i mean i might get my teacher evaluations back and it might say otherwise but <laughs> but i thought it was a pretty good term yeah i think it's really interesting the way you organize your own course because it doesn't look too different to the way i organize my own course even though i'm teaching to engineers actually computer scientists and and the things you mentioned they are very much they i have the same things in common i try to first of all expose my students to a lot of examples and this is something i learned after giving this course for a few times because what i notice is that many many people just need to understand the language first right there is yeah. a huge yeah. visual literacy kind of kind of gap there that you need to to fill right and the second thing i also try to invite people uh, normally from yeah companies or or startup or or even designers to let them provide their own perspective on the, on visualization, and that's really really useful. And, and every time I do that at the end of the course, the students are super excited. It's one of the part they they like the most of the course. They always mention having guest guest during the course is one of the best thing of this course. So, but it's surprising to yeah, me to I mean, see I, that probably yeah. we have completely different kind of approaches and audience, but in the end we we are using very similar tools. But, well, I, th I think that, it, you know, in some ways, I always feel like bringing in a guest is kind of cheating because <laughs> you, you're like, and here now for class, I'll let somebody else do the work that you're paying yeah, me for. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. But, but actually, it's, it's, uh, it, you, you can try your best as a, as a teacher to make sure that all the students kind of, you link with them in some way, in the way that you're explaining things and in the way that you're, that you're trying to convey these concepts. But by bringing in other people, you know, everybody else has a different way of explaining these things and a different way of talking about them. And, you know, for me, teaching is like you try to bait as many hooks as you can and hope and hope that that 
the students are going to bite one of them and get really excited about it. And that's what, that's what you want, right? You know, the best projects come out of that, not out of a requirement to do the project, but, but out of a, like a, a necessity, like a spiritual necessity <laughs> to do the project. And, and, and sometimes you can get that going yourself, but, but I find what, you know, I bring these, these people in and, and what, what often happened, I think, is that, you know, they'll say one sentence that, that will just really resonate with somebody and then, and then they'll do a whole project around that. Yeah. And so, um, the other part of this course was that for, so for each of the four little mini semesters, the students built a project. And okay. so it was, um, it was a chance to sort of really, you know, in a, in a fairly short period, build four pretty substantial projects and, and um, across really different domains. And so, you know, for, I think for a lot of the students, the first one was relatively easy. You know, let's just do an aesthetic explore, exploration of data. And then by the time we got to the end, like, how do you build a project that addresses issues around data and ethics? I mean, that's a very hard question. And so um, it was, it, we, we sort of saw a combination of projects where people felt at really at ease and projects where people didn't feel at ease. And I think that's kind of the ideal. You don't want a course where everybody, where every assignment's easy and you don't want a course where every assignment is so hard that you don't feel like you're, you're succeeding at all. And so with this method, I think it worked. I mean, so I'm going to release, I'm releasing a, a a website, a gallery website of, of 17, there were 17 students. So each of the projects I had picked, students, I had them pick one of their projects and that's going to go up, up on a website, um, um, which I'll, I'll, I'll give you guys the link to when it's, when it's uh, complete. Yeah, that would be great. Can, can you give us a brief overview? Like just talk about two or three projects so we get a sense of the, the range thing uh, people did. Oh man. I mean, there was, there was almost, Almost 80 projects oh, yeah. in total, yeah. you know, so, you know, because 17 20. students times times mm -hmm. four, right? So, and that's actually not true because they did some group projects. So there's probably somewhere closer to 40 or 50. But, but um, you know, in the, in the aesthetic um, uh, uh, portion of things, uh, you know, people were doing, you know, there was, that was a really interesting one because some of the, some of them, I, I asked them to try to, to, to focus purely on, you know, this kind of the what what is what is the natural form of the data without any kind of interpretation and without any labeling and so on and so on and that was a pretty hard thing it was an easy thing for students who'd never done data visualization and a very hard thing for students who had done data visualization yeah you know, they were like because everybody who had done data visualization was like i must put a label on this right it's, but the it's, people who yeah, had never done that didn't they didn't do that so and and uh and so, so we got, we got, you know, there was a bunch of really creative projects that, that, um, that kind of ran the gamut from some things that were, I think, pure abstraction and some things that, that were not. And, 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 you know, one of my students did a, a gigantic print of, um, of all of the uh, stories in the New York times over a hundred years involving each of the planets in the solar mm -hmm. system. And, and it, and it was this kind of physical representation of, of the solar system, as well as being this text representation of, of the stories that had been, had been made about them, which I thought was, was, was really nice. And then, and then as the course went on, I think maybe with a little bit of pushing, the project started to get a little more political and a little bit more, um, a little bit more experimental. Mm -hmm. But you had them do really four projects each over the course of the semester. I think that that's a great, great method too. I mean, 
sort of fo forces you to do, um, yeah, just quick, lean, lean projects and not like overthink everything, right? Yeah, yeah. And so they had three weeks though to do the projects, which oh, is good. kind of a good period yeah. of time. You know, like it's it's enough to do something um, successful, but not enough to um, to uh, to to get really too wrapped up yeah. in it. So um, that was Nora's nice. Nora's Nora <laughs> swaving. Sorry, Inter I'm getting interrupted in the middle of yeah. my very Our serious had, interview. I haven't seen what happened, but that was nice. <laughs> Somebody, um, <laughs> somebody, yeah, that was my girlfriend, Nora. Uh, so, you know, one of the um, the other things that I do in the class, not to sort of stick on the class for too long, but I force them to have at least one of their projects be um, a conceptual project. And so here the idea is that, like, if you didn't have the constraints that you have as far as money mm -hmm. and and you know availability of public space and 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 materials and time what might you do within this context mm -hmm. and i thought that was really important as well so so that students are sort of not only restricted to like oh what can i do in three weeks but they can say um okay i have this idea we're gonna do a projection on the side of the empire state building it's gonna you know they can they can get into those areas which which are really important, I think, and and it you know kind of opens up your brain to possibilities that that maybe you didn't have before. Mm -hmm. And and I, I think a lot of the projects kind of had a seed of something, which hopefully the students will follow. You know, it might not be something as big as the Empire State Building, but it might be a project that that they turn into a, a thesis, thesis project next yeah, year, yeah. or 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 a or you know a bigger project after they're after they're graduated. Cool. That sounds really good. Uh, you definitely have to document all this. It's Something it's often like right after the semester, if you don't do it straight away, you sort of, yeah. you don't manage. Yes. And then, a few, yeah, and then you know, they think like, man, that was good stuff. I should have put it somewhere. <laughs> and, well, I mean, so, so let, we'll, we'll finish this discussion about the class here, but um, there's a GitHub repository for the class, which is an open repository. And that has all of the um, course note or the syllabus. And then as well as all the source code for each of the projects that the students nice, did. Yeah. So there, there's, there's a lot of um, of kind of documentation sitting there, which is nice. Yeah. A GitHub repository is, is the best way to document a class anyways. I think oh, that's my, my theory, at least. <laughs> yeah. And it, it, it sort of, I, I liked it and didn't like it. I didn't like it because it also became like, we'll also be teaching you how to use GitHub. And I'm yeah. like, I... I feel like me teaching somebody how to use GitHub is very much the blind leading the blind, right? Like, <laughs> yeah. I know, I know, like the four GitHub commands that you need to know, yeah. but as soon as it gets past that, I'm like, uh, you know, up upstream merge. I don't, I don't, I don't even know what you're talking about anymore. So, yeah, which actually, uh, let me ask you one last question about the course because that sure. I'm really curious about that. Sorry, but, but do you actually teach them how to use the various tools that you need to build these visualizations or any kind of data art? Because that's another bottleneck I have, another problem. Because if you, if you need yeah. to teach them the tools, then it takes much longer and it's much yeah. more involved use, usually. But if you don't do that, then you might actually have some other kind of problems, right? So how do you solve this? Yeah. Yeah, so I mean, the, the nice thing about ITP is that ITP is kind of foundationally built on processing. So, oh, okay, so the students yeah. the yeah. students have um, at least one term, and it, it, so the class is a mix of first and, and second year students. So they have at least one term and maybe a year and a okay. term of processing experience. So we build we build on that. So I, I probably you know um, ended up doing 
three full days, three or maybe three and a half full days of teaching where, uh, of where we would walk through projects from beginning to end. So okay. one of the things that I try to do in my class as much as possible is to sort of, is to really show how we would make something. Yeah. And so yeah. starting with the data set, let's make this and then let's make that and let's make that and let's end up with our result. And, it, and, and it's taken a long time to maybe understand how to do that in the period of three hours. But, yeah. but I think that now I sort of understand how to do that. And there are some good examples. So we, you know, we, did, we do one XML example and we do one JSON example and we do one CSV example. Yeah, and then yeah, we, yeah. Do, we do some mapping stuff as well. And, and then some language analysis. So there's, there's you know, the course, because of the way the course exists, it's hard to teach everybody everything because we are covering so much territory. Sure. But at the same point, there is it is definitely a mix of a theoretical and a teaching class. Okay. But that's smart to focus so, it on D3 as you did, Enrico, or processing as you did, because then, you know, the, the teams can help each other yeah. out and it's not like a wild mixture of... Sure, yeah. And it's not, you know, the tool... People get so obsessed with tools right, these right. days, but it's... Yeah. I'm, and I, I, I like processing because I think it's a good teaching tool. But but I don't care if anybody wants to make their project in D3 or if they want to make it in any, anywhere else. I actually don't care at all. And I think at the end of the day, the class is, is more about how to ask good questions and how to come up with good ideas and concepts and how to understand the flow of making that project manifest itself and not really about the syntax of processing or the syntax of leaflet.js because that stuff, come on, we can all find that on the internet. You know, of there's a stack, like the stack over, there is no stack overflow for good ideas. <laughs> like you can't, and, and, and there is a stack overflow for every other programming question that's ever been answered, you know, no matter how obscure right. it is. And so what I try to do is like maybe not waste time on stuff that people could Google and, and, and try to get to the bottom, the hard stuff, which is how do you, you know, how do you, and that's what, you know, maybe to, to circle our wagons is, is, is that's to me the interesting thing about data art. You know, art, you know, I think good, good art asks questions and, and um, how do you ask those good questions? And, 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 uh, and that's, that's difficult. And, but I, at the same time, I was really impressed by, by a lot of the output of the students who, who I think did a really great job of looking at um, a data set or a, a you know, a, a an area of data in a way that I never would have. Cool. Cool. How does, how does this relate to your practice at the studio? Is it like, uh, what do you say? Are you being commissioned to do data art pieces or is it more a different type of, uh, of practice? What you do with the, in the studio or is yeah. it a mixture of things? So that's a good question. <laughs> we, um, it's not a question that's a, that question is a moving target. You know, we, we do different things, uh, depending on when you catch us, <laughs> but, but primarily, you know, I think if we could describe what we do in, in two halves, where on one half of it, we're doing this kind of data artwork. So we have commissions with museums and galleries. We, um, you know, we, we just, we, we're just in the midst of a, of a residency at the museum of modern art. Um, we did we did pieces last year for the Denver Art Museum and the Vancouver Art Gallery. We're just finishing, just starting a brand new um, project, a big public art project in Boston. So that's kind of half of what we do. 
And then the other half of what we do is, is, is R&D work. So, so we're kind of an R&D group for hire. So we, we, we do work a lot of work with Microsoft. We've worked in the past with Intel and Samsung. And, and, and here um, people are coming to us with, with data questions that are hard to ask using traditional or hard to answer using traditional techniques. Right? I think the reason why... The reason why the company started, here's, the, here's how the company started, is that Mark Hansen and I um, were working at the New York Times, and together Mark and I had built a tool called Cascade, which was a Twitter visualization tool. And then right after Cascade, and actually concurrent with Cascade, Ben, uh, ben Rubin and Mark and I um, worked on a project um, um, uh, called the Shakespeare Machine. And I think we realized that actually the way that we were approaching these projects and the way that we built them, you know, on one side, an R&D, very sophisticated visualization tool, and on the other side, a data sculpture for a theater in New York City, was the same practice. You know, we, we, we do the same things. And so for our artwork, you know, we, we're, doing, we're building probabilistic models, we're designing algorithms, we're building databases, we're writing APIs, we're creating visualization tools, we're, you know, doing all of these quite sophisticated things, and then the result of that is an artwork. But um, when, we do, when we do the more research R&D-focused work, it's exactly the same thing. And I think we, we you know, it's kind of a test you know, OCR, it was and is an experiment of, of can we take um, methods from science, statistics, computer, pro, you know, programming and engineering, can, can, we, can we combine them with approaches from the humanities? And can that, can that, when those two things come together, can we do interesting things? And I think that's, that's something that I always have a bit of a problem with when we talk about our work, you know, it, I think somebody on Twitter asked this. They're like, how do you balance what you do against like traditional analytics? Well, the fact is we do that stuff. You know, we, 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 we have a tremendous amount of rigor in our process and, 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 and we're still, we're probably doing the same things. If not, you know, maybe I'm being, um, maybe I'm being presumptuous, but maybe more sophisticated than what most people are doing. But the, the end product is not, is not that graph or chart. The end product is something on top of that, which is the kind of data art thing. You know, this, because if we're just going to take that, we're not going to take that graph or, or chart and put it up in a wall in a gallery and be like, ta-da, you know. But the discovery still comes with a lot of these, these machines for discovery that we're all, we all know how to use, right? You know, visualization is a tool to help us understand systems better. And when I'm trying to build an artwork about a system, I want to understand it better. And so I'm, I'm visualizing and, and, you know, we're, we're, you know, running regression analysis and doing k-means clustering and, and doing, you know, doing all of these things if we need to do them to help us answer the question. And then once we have an answer to the question, we think, okay, what is the core? What is the core of this answer? And how do I, sh how, how do I tell that to people? And, and, and almost always the answer to that is not like my, my laptop screen, you know, it, and it may not be that even, it's not even like, um, that it's too technical. It's just that it doesn't capture the thing in, a, in, a, in, a, in a, what I feel like is a real way, you know, and 
when we when we're working with data, we're working with you know measurements of a real world system usually, right? So, and we we do these levels of abstraction, which are really important. We we abstract and we abstract and we abstract, and we get to a place where we can like find some insight. But what I think happens with most sort of data science work is that you remain on that level of abstraction. And, and what, what we try to do, I think, is try to roll that back into people's lives, like roll it back into, into human experience, to sort of bring it back to the real world again. And not, not in a really literal way, but, you know, using physical objects and using, lately we've been doing a lot of work with performers, like bringing these things back viscerally into an, into an engagement that, that people, that touches them in some way. You know, and and that that to me is really, it's really rewarding and it's really exciting. And and I also, you know, I had this discussion with somebody the other day because I get this question all the time, right? It's like the number one question, like what what is the difference between data art and data science? And you know, if we take data science with a capital S, we can talk about like. You know, I have a hypothesis. I want to test that hypothesis, and I'm going to get, you know, I'm either going to, I'm going to get a result that agrees with my hypothesis, or I'm going to get a result that that disagrees with my hypothesis. It's this binary output. I think what art does is it sort of it negotiates and engages with that ambigu- ambiguity in the in the middle between yes and no, right? <laughs> There's a lot of ambiguity between yes and no, and so we're doing a similar thing. We have an idea or a question or a feeling or, or some sort of, uh, you know, I, I, you know, I think idea is probably the right word. And we also make something to test that idea, but, but instead of getting a yes or a no, we get something else. We get, we get kind of this, this, the public anyways, gets a kind of experience that's unique to them. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, which, by the way, I think that's what visualization is good for. I mean, visualization, visualization is not really a, this kind of very neat scientific tool that can, can give you the ultimate answer to a given scientific question, right? Ah, uh, yeah, and, yeah, yeah. That's crucial from my point of view. But there is another thing you said that, that really resonates with some of the things that I'm always advocating for. And this idea that regardless what kind of output you're going to generate in the end, the process is what it's, it's really the core part of, of visualization, right? But the problem is that, and actually the process itself could actually lead to something that is completely different. It could be yep. something that you can call data science, something that you can call visual storytelling or something that you can call data art or whatever. But the processes looks very, very similar. Mm. And what really bugs me is the fact that people are not very easily exposed to these processes. So -hmm. if you look around the way people are exposed to visualization or data art in general, there's very little exposure to the process itself unless a person comes to your course, for instance, right? And I think that's, that, that's an issue because people look at these beautiful pictures or whatever, and they don't understand what's behind that, right? So you, the, the final outcome could be one number, could be something that you expose at MoMA, could be something else. But the process is what makes this kind of output. And the process is really the thing that you need to learn in order to become, uh, I don't know how to call it, data visualization expert or whatever you want to call it, right? But Yeah, and I, I, you know, I, I, lo- I love that. And if I, I, I want to applaud, but I don't want to applaud because my microphone <laughs> will go. Will go. Because, because it really, you know, it really is about the process and, 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 
that's something that I, I know that we have been bad at over the last year that we've had OCR going, mostly just because we've been, you know, running and stumbling and trying to get things together. But I think for me in the past, I think one of the things that I have been very good at through my blog and through the talks that I give and so on is actually talking about that process and, and, you know, telling people that every, every like pretty thing that I'm showing you is, is like balanced on top of a mountain of failure and that, and that that's okay, you know, and, 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 and the, this idea of vision that, and I, I wrote an article about this for Harvard Business Review last year, but talking about the idea that visualization should not be thought of as a noun, you know. Absolutely. Not to think yeah. about making a visualization, mm. but instead to think about visualizing as the, as the verb. And, and, and that um, I tell people who take my workshops and, and I tell people that are in my courses at ITP that, that you may not ever make a visualization that will be the thing. But but I can guarantee you that at least once after this class you will make, you will visualize something to help you understand it, and and that that to me is you know it should be the core function of, of visualization, mm-hmm. it, and 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 it, and it should be a cognitive tool, and and often a cognitive tool, and this is maybe the most important difference is that. A cognitive tool for the person making the visualization, and not always for the person seeing it. You know, we're, we're so into visualization being a thing for an audience. Whereas, like, if you were to do, you know, a breakdown of all the visualizations we make in the studio, nine out of ten of them are for us. You know, probably more than that. You know, nineteen out of twenty of them are for us. One out of twenty is is something yeah, yeah, that will yeah. that yeah. will show that will will be a will be will even resemble the final result. Mm. You know, we, sure, absolutely, absolutely. But do you show them yeah. the client? Like, how much do you involve the client in, let's say, you an external R and D uh, project? Yeah. I mean, when you do a data art commission, that's funny, anyways, because then you only usually, you know, you. You hand over the end result more or less to be displayed, right? And the process, I mean, you can document that, but it's not part of the piece. How do you handle that in the R&D case? Like, is the whole process the thing you deliver sort of for the client? Or is it more like uh, they they give you a brief, uh, which is fairly open, yeah. and you check back with them, and at some point you have something that seems to be working, and then this is what, what you give them? How does that work? Yeah, I mean, again, there's no standard answer for that because our clients are so different, and 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 some of our projects are open-ended R and D projects where they're like, we have this interesting idea and this interesting data set. Mm-hmm. Maybe they have a data set, maybe they don't. And can you just like almost come up with some con- concepts and ideas from this? But most of the time, you know, there's some definable result. But we, we try to keep our process as visible as, as possible. So usually when I'm meeting with the client to show them what we've done, either midway or the end of that process, there's a lot of, let me show you our initial mm-hmm. explorations. Let me show you the next stage. Let me show you what we went from there. And I actually find what this process really exciting because almost always these people haven't seen any of right. this. You know, they're like, oh, that's amazing. That's amazing. Oh, my God. And even if these are people who have worked with this data really closely, mm-hmm. they just 
the truth is that, the, you know, there's, and I hear this over and over again from people, they're like, they're so busy that they have no time to like look at the data. You know, they're, they're busy collecting it and building, building infrastructure to hold enough of it so that it doesn't fall down. And then, you know, fundraising to keep the process going. And, and they actually, even though it's not a hard thing to visualize this stuff, and most of these people are extremely capable to do so, they just don't have the time. And so they see, they see it for the first time and they're like, wow, that's like so, uh, it's really rewarding for them. And then, you know, for an art commission, and, and I, you know, I should say that, you know, it's not a binary division of what we do. And I think that there are projects that kind of sit somewhere in the middle of, of those two, of those two things. And I think that, um, uh, anyways, the, 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 the answer is still more or less the mm -hmm. same. You know, the nice, what I, my projects that I like, that I like the most are projects that we're, we're allowed to show that stuff as it's happening. Mm -hmm. So we have a we have a, a process tumbler that's that's on our website where we put we post process images from what we're doing and and uh, I'd love to do way more of that and 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 we we we've been starting to do open GitHub repos for projects that are projects that we're working mm -hmm. on for clients that aren't concerned about privacy and then that and that way we also get to. Um, no, we just get to let people in on That's this. Nice. Yeah, I think yeah. it's important to let people in mm -hmm. on it because it's it's also good for us. It's good for us because somebody can look at something and say, "This reminds me of of this," or "Hey, do you you know?" Most often, the reason why I like to get our work out there as much as we can is what happens is something really magical is that somebody obviously they always say this sentence and it might be like the genders are reversed and the locations are worse <laughs> are reversed or whatever, but they'll be like. You should talk to my friend Alice because Alice is an expert in, you know, malaria in Nigeria and she'd love to talk right, to you. Right. And and then you get to talk to this person who like completely changes the way you're looking mm -hmm. at it and that 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 otherwise wouldn't be able to happen. And the, you know the word researchers research is in our name for a reason. <laughs> and I think that one of the things that sets us apart is is a really you know we're really rigorous about the research that we do around a process and make, and making sure we understand it deeply and 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 that human connection is so important for us. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean that's a general I think misconception many people have about art that's somehow about just hanging around all day and then having a brilliant idea at yeah. seven p.m. Yeah, while yeah. having a glass of red wine. And <laughs> <laughs> actually, it's there's a little bit the of that. hardest I'm working gonna, people I know are artists. You, I mean, let me just put that here on record because no, it's <laughs> absolutely true. All the good artists are extremely hard work. You need a lot yeah, of discipline. I, I remember, and like one of my one of my friends in Canada is an artist named Brian Jungen, and 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 he, I, I don't know if you've seen his work, but he he uh, he's maybe most famous for these pieces. Um, where he made these Haida um, masks out of Nike Air Jordans. Okay. And, but he also he made he makes these gigantic whale skeletons out of white plastic lawn chairs and and um, I remember being he he was probably the first artist of that caliber that I was ever exposed to really directly as in a personal level and and just understanding how good he was and what he did and how precise of a craftsman he was and how deep and rigorous his research was. And, and 
there's this I think there's always this kind of thing where like you're like what oh an artist would be an easy thing to be you know <laughs> but and and like I, there's just no way I could ever do the work that Brian does because he you know he's an he's incredible the, the the ability to you know, his spatial um, sort of spatial Abil- design abilities are just unbelievable and and, and 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 the precision in which all of his projects have to be designed and engineered and 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 that's also a piece that that I've been exposed to a lot working with Ben Rubin who's one of the co-founders of OCR you know when we do these projects that end up being these gigantic sculptures that hang from the ceiling of a gallery you know there's a tremendous amount of architecture engineering you know um, precision that has to happen in these things that I certainly never have to deal with mm-hmm. when I'm working uh, you know, on our traditional data products. Right. There's no question that the rigor involved in a physical project is like way, 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 way more than than the rigor in any in any sort of non-physical software-based project yeah. that I've ever worked on. You know, if your software crashes, that's one thing, but if your 11,000-pound sculpture <laughs> crashes from the <laughs> ceiling, that's not a good... <laughs> It's not a good It's crashed again. Oh, shoot. (laughs) (laughs) It's tough. I mean, maybe that relates also a bit to the whole question around the art market. I mean, this discussion is a rabbit hole, but maybe we can like briefly touch on it. Do you think like besides direct commissions, let's say from companies or cultural institutions, is there like a market for artworks? Like it's a bit difficult to sell digital art. I think that's something that has been a theme over the last few years that is not as accepted in the traditional yeah. gallery world. And so do you think that's like, how, how do you think is this going to play out? Will, will there be like a high-end gallery type world? Will be this the way data art goes? Or is it more crowdfunded or <laughs> collectives doing, yeah. you know, just trying to, to figure it out how it works? Or What's your feeling? How, well, how, will there be a market yeah. for art? In, for for data art, sure, sure there will, there there yes there will, I will pronounce that yes there will be a market for for this type of art. I, you know I think there's something interesting to think about, which is this kind of division um, between you know data and and this data data art term falls apart a little bit, right? Like I I think we could talk about software, mm, we could talk about digital, digital art, all of these things fall apart. Naming is kind of hard here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In, in, because I think that, you know, when we talk about what I consider to be data art, I mean, we had Adam Harvey come and talk at, 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 at OCR a couple of weeks ago. I don't know if you're familiar with Adam's work, but he sort of does this work that's on the boundary of fashion and technology. And he builds, um, you know, counter surveillance burkas and, mm-hmm. and um, you know, these kind of clo- uh, um, um, uh, CV dazzle makeup that, that's meant to meant to um, interfere with with computer vision and and um, I think that I think that that's hard to classify in our traditional idea of what software art is even though it's art that engages with software mm-hmm. you know it's art about about sur- subverting a computer vision algorithm and his work involves a lot of research into those algorithms and a lot of testing a b testing of these of these kind of ideas so it's it's a very computational work but it's it's not digital yeah, right yeah. so i would place that in underneath the umbrella of data art but i would but it kind of doesn't fit in our normal categories and i think that um actually you know this 
if we if we look at like a lot of the we can look at the art world in general, the capital A art world of artists that make objects, and and those people are 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 doing pretty well, right? <laughs> you know, yeah. and and you know the gallery world is also doing pretty well. But the, you know, for a long time, there's been a whole another set of artists who kind of don't make mm. objects, and 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 you know we could list. Tons of them who have participatory practices or they have performance-based practices or they have something that's like even weirder, you know, and, and, and those artists have never been part of what Mm -hmm. we think of as like, you know, the Christie's auction house kind of, kind of thing. There's a whole nother piece of that, which usually involves, um, residencies, uh, kind of commission engagements with art, 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 art museums and, and cultural centers, you know, those types of things. And so if we think about where data art is going to land, to me, the most interesting parts of data art are probably going to land in that mm-hmm. second More category performance, where, where there are things that, uh, that aren't necessarily objects, but, but on the same hand and the same point, the ones that are objects there are, you know, I think we're already seeing some of those things you know, I was at, um, uh, a, a, a traveling show of the Smithsonian's print collection when I was in Ohio three months ago and 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 Luke Dubois um uh pieces um from his uh, a more perfect union project which are like totally data art mm-hmm. are are in that collection you know they're in the permanent collection of the Smithsonian so so there's certainly things that are happening in that in that category you know for our work um we're definitely not we don't make we don't make objects that a collector could own I mean, that might be a mistake <laughs> right but yeah. But we kind of don't, you know, and 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 so our work is either, you know, very process based and involves us going and doing a residency somewhere and installing a piece for a for for a temporary time, or or there are these larger permanent installations in public space which are inherently vastly more, you know, labor intensive and problematic and expensive for most individuals to say, hey, I want this like gigantic data sculpture installed in my living room mm-hmm. yeah but I if think you're listening and you want a gigantic data sculpture involved installed <laughs> yeah. in your living room Get let's talk but, but i don't know that there are that many people who have that <laughs> yeah so what one type of art that i haven't seen develop much that would be really nice to see more often is is data performers right I think the, the best example is Hans Rosling, who is just the perfect <laughs> data player, yeah, yeah, right? right? <laughs> and yeah. I guess that there is a very nice space there that, that some people should try to fill, right? Because the whole idea of, I don't know, going on stage and doing something that is funny. Yeah, a live also data performance. A, yeah, a live data performance is something that I haven't seen. You, I don't know if you're purposely lobbing this up like a softball for me to hit, but that's... Uh, <laughs> That's well, kind of exactly the work that we've been doing. So, um, uh-huh. in our residency at, at MoMA, so oh, okay. um, we've had the the tremendous luck to be able to work with an um, experimental theater group in New York City over the yeah. last four or five years called the Elevator Repair Service. And so, um, part of our result of our residency at MoMA is a series of performances in which we've um, written these algorithmic scripts that. Um, that provide the performers with these with these uh, ways to perform the collections database, so 120,000 pieces. And so we, we staged our first performance that was kind of a test run um, at MoMA in in uh, January. And then in January of next year, we're going to run a series of performances in the main um, galleries uh, of MoMA um, 
again with Elevate Repair Service, which will be exactly that. It will be a performance of, of this data. And, I, you know, I, I've, I haven't enjoyed myself this much working with data for a really long time as with, you know, engaging with performers. And, and there's a link to this, to this performance up on my blog right now, but um, there's one particular piece of the performance that, I, that has just been really been sitting with me, and, and, and I'll just take one minute to describe it, and you can go look at the video, and, and then I'll talk about why, why I, uh, I'm so excited about it. But, um, so we were actually sitting in this room that I'm in right now, which is the OCR um, kind of front room, and Mark Henson... Um, was doing some data exploration on his laptop. This is kind of how it happens, right? We have, the, we have this data set, 120,000 lines in a big, gigantic, dirty CSV file. And so we spent some days cleaning it, and then and we finally had it ready. And, and Mark was, you know, was, had Python running, and he was doing some natural language explorations and some basic counts and stuff. And I had processing going, and I was looking at the dimensions of the pieces and so on and so on. And, and Mark was like, listen to this. And what, and what he had done is he wrote a quick Python script that counted the first names of every artist in the collection and then ordered them by order of occurrence. So the most popular name is John, and the second most popular name is Robert. Mm -hmm. and, then, and then he just started reading them. And as it turned out, the first 42 names are male surnames. Mm -hmm. And it's not until number 43 do you hear the first female surname, which is Mary. And this reading, we were sitting there, Ben and I were sitting there, and it was really, there was this tension, right? We were like waiting for him to read a woman, saying, <laughs> but it didn't come. And then, and then <clears throat> finally when it came, we were like, oh, my God, thank you. And we just expected the floodgates to open. But then there's like another 10 names until you hear the next female's name. And so this is, we basically took that idea verbatim into the performance. And so in the performance, there's a male actor who's reading all the male names, in a, and then the two female um, mm -hmm. um, actors are reading the female right. names. Yeah. And, and he starts reading them really, really fast because there's so many of them. And, and, and I thought to myself right after the performance happened, um, I don't think there's a better way to do that data set. Right. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like, because, I, I, like, a, you know, a list, you know, a, a word cloud, none of it brings that kind of tension to it. And none of it really engages with the politics of it in the same way that that did. And, and, you, and you can watch the video. I, I just, I love it. I mean, it's like, and that to me was so exciting because it was a proof of concept of something, you know, that the data and performance is not just a kind of frivolous exercise, but can actually give us ways of engaging with these data sets that are more meaningful and more effective than our traditional means. And so we're, we're like, we're really excited, and in, 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 and in the spring of next year, and probably maybe the fall of this year, we'll be doing um, open rehearsals in the, in the MoMA galleries as well. So while the museum is open, we'll be rehearsing in the galleries with actors and, and, and you know, trying to understand how we can, we can refine the, the algorithms that are generating the scripts to kind of work in different ways. And it's just, it's just been so amazing. And, and, um, that's actually something that I challenge my students to as well. It's a hard one because, because, you know, by, by, I think by default, a lot of the ITP students aren't very performative. And I don't mean that in like, they won't speak up in class, but they're like, you know, they're not used to being on stage or maybe they're not performing artists. And so 
you know, I'd love, I think that's, I'd love to see more, more of it because it's really, it's super effective and, and it's a way that data can be brought out into public space. It's a way that it's the other thing that I think the biggest, most important weapon there is that it's completely unexpected. Yeah. Yeah. There's this whole concept of serendipity there, right? And which is, yeah. I just think if you get ask people to close their eyes and say, what do you think data art is going to look like? Pretty much no <laughs> one's going to say, oh, I bet it'll be a performance, you know? <laughs> They're going to start with, like, you know, computer screens and charts and graphs, and eventually they might get to, like, sculpture, but they're probably going to take them a long time before they're going to be, like, thinking about performance. No, but that's the thing. I think there are so many additional and new ways of doing data art that are somewhat unexplored, and that's a very good example. Yeah, and dance, I think, is really fruitful. I mean, this is a, that's an area that has been explored in, in some yes. small ways anyways. Yeah. You know, I've seen, yeah. seen the sort of sorting algorithms as dance, and, and um, you know, dance is somewhere where, where tech has become a part of dance for quite a long time. Yeah. And because of the experimentality of dance, it's, I think there's more willingness to, to, to kind of collaborate with, with artists who are tech artists. Um, theater has sort of taken a little longer and, 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 uh, and sort of, you know, capital P performance art is also something that I don't think we've seen too much of yet. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And what's interesting about that elevator uh, repair service piece is also, instead of like presenting a lot of data in a very small space, what you often try to achieve, you know, in, in data visualization, it's more like you stretch out a really simple data set, a really small one, but you, you give people a chance to meditate on that and, you know, not just like consume it much slower than they would be able to. And that, that hopefully like enables right. you to, to go deep into that. Yeah. Really meditate on it. Yeah, and I think that opportunity yeah. to meditate on a theme, you give people, uh, you know, an object to allow them to meditate on it. Yeah, I think that's totally true, and I think it connects with some of the things that we discussed in the past on the show, the idea that every single data point can actually tell a very compelling story. I mean, this this whole dance between trying to cram a million data points into one screen, but also trying to pick up one single point right. and tell and a story that. about this single point, right? I think that that's really interesting. And, and again, going back to Ernst Rosling's work, I don't know if you, I think everyone knows his work about Gapminder, but there is another yeah. piece of work that he did in the past that is really fantastic, that I really loved. I don't know if you've ever seen it. I think it's, I don't remember the details, but I remember it's kind of like different shades of poverty, right? So he has different images of, of I think it's villages in Africa or some, some Honestly, I don't remember the details. I think it's different kind of villages in Africa or other countries. And it's basically about the fact that we wealthy people in the West think about poverty as one single kind of poverty, right? But there are very different shapes and degrees of poverty. And by showing these different images, you can actually see how, how, how poverty can actually differ from different scales of poverty, yeah. right? And I found this thing really, really engaging and, and, and revealing at the same time. And I think another thing that I, I think another connection I see here is that we live in a world where where these artificial 
distinctions between artists or or anything. I mean, Hans Rosling is what is a statistician or political scientist, yes, and yeah, there are yeah. people who come from computer science, people who are trained in design, in art, and we're all doing th doing things that are very very similar, right? So you have Hans Rosling, who is probably a statistician or anything, and is doing real performances on on the show, right? <laughs> And then you have Jer, who is an artist, but is doing very technical stuff and dealing with statistics, right? This is what you mentioned before, right? So I think that these all artificial boundaries don't make any sense at all today. Yeah, I mean, I actually think Hans Rosling is a doctor. He's a medical oh, doctor. Oh, he's a doctor, yeah, yeah sorry. Yeah, yeah, which is, which is <laughs> even you know, I think... Yeah, even better, right? Yeah, even, even better. And... and, and uh, yeah, I, I agree with what you're saying 100%, but I, I, and when I talk about this, I also want to make it clear that I, you know, I have a huge amount of respect for people who are experts in their field. Of course, and, sure. You know, and, and, and I think that, that being good at, at working across fields is about understanding your ignorance, you know, and, 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 and engaging, you know, both in, both using, using your ignorance for, for good, <laughs> you know, to ask questions that maybe people wouldn't normally have asked or to be able to frame things in ways that might be unusual, but yeah. also to, to be able to be, um, you know, I think I'm always just tremendously humbled by working with people who are, who are, you know, really immersed in the, in their single, in their single field. But I, 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 um, I do really think that, that, you know, data, if we look at data, this sort of data visualization slash data science world that, that maybe most people who are generally listening to this podcast come, come in, there's a lot of critical things we could say about the state of that, of that world right now. And I, and, and I think that collaboration with other fields is, is really important to sort of shake us out of it. And, and 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 I think the the most the most fruitful of those collaborations maybe comes um, with the humanities. And mm -hmm. you know I've I've lo I, I've long been an advocate of of um, you know, having data people work work really closely with journalists. You know, in my time with that New York Times, yeah, yeah. I, I think that you know journalists are so good at asking good questions. And I think data scientists, and I'm, I'm using a really broad brush here, and again, I have you know, a huge amount of respect for people who are so much better at what they do than I am, but um, you know, sometimes we're not very good at asking the right questions. And, and, and that runs us right back to something you said a couple of minutes ago, which is that you could take a data set and just keep on drilling into it, you know, <laughs> and, 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 you know, just ask a question, ask, ask questions about every row and every column and, and, and you can really get into a data, to, to a data set in a way, which is, um, which I think we're statisticians have maybe never been that good at. And now with these sort of technological aids that we have in this world of big data, we're even worse at it. We're so used to flying at ten thousand feet that we don't really know what to do when we're on the ground, and and um, and and I, I'm that's a weakness that I have and that I've really tried to get over, and and it's something that I try to hammer into my students as much as possible is is to really interrogate your data sets, mm. and you know, 
I'm not brave enough to do it, but I think you could teach a 14 week class out around like one data set, you know, and not even a big one. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Just where the just data comes like, from, what it doesn't show, like yeah, where it's in Exactly. Yeah. All, you know, all these things. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think actually Kim Reese um, said this the, for the first time, but she was like, you know, take your data set, slice one row out of it, and like spend an afternoon with that row. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, what what are all of the things that you could list that you that you know or that you don't know yeah, yeah. about that row of data, and 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 then only then go and put it back in the hole and come back to it, which which you know from a from a R from our R and D work and also our artwork that's something that we try to do as much as possible, you know how, to, and then the nice thing I think about a lot of these pieces that we work on is that. Each one of those rows is like a portal into another world of knowledge, you know, especially when we're dealing with something like the MoMA collection. You know, each piece, each artist, each year, each, you know, these are all things that open up like this massive other, uh, you know, set of data that we could have access to or set of questions. And, and it's really important to be able to get into your data and look at it on a personal level as well as on a kind of gigantic level. You know, the the distant reading and also close reading. And how do those two things operate together? Yeah, and I think one thing that it's very easy to lose in this big data hype is the the fact that data is just a signal of, of something real, right? So we try we ended up treating data as if data is is something on its own, right? But data is always a recording of of something else that is more real, right? Yeah, right. And I think keeping in mind that data is just the recording of a signal of something else most of the time, I'd actually say 100% of the time, I think it's really important. Just stopping for a moment and, and ask yourself, what what's the real thing, right? So this is yeah. a, repre- a representation of a real thing. Right. Yeah. I and mean, I write, I write. Yes. Sure. Go ahead. Sorry. I mean, I, I write. I write basically that, like, on the board at my first class. Right. Data is not the thing. Yeah. Like, data. <laughs> data, yeah. data is a measurement of the thing. And ninety yeah. percent of the really bad mistakes we make in engaging with data mm. is by forgetting, forgetting that. that. Yeah. 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 And 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 that and that 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 gap is really interesting. It's a really you know. There's a there's that there's the this separation between between the thing and its measurement, and then there's the separation between the measurement and its representation, and then there's the separation between the representation and its understanding, right? So there's like these these like little pockets of air in between those things that insulate from the thing and our understanding of the thing. <laughs> and sometimes I think as a data visualization person, you're trying to make those pockets of air tighter so that they don't, you know, you can more clearly hear the signal from part to part. And I think one of the great things about, um, about, about working in data art is that, is that sometimes that's not the goal. Sometimes, sometimes you actually want to build out those layers so people are more aware of them. Sometimes, sometimes it becomes an almost, you know, I think in the, in the performance, the case of the performance, we're actually adding like kind of another layer there. And in a weird way, you know, in, in the case of that um, names piece we were talking about, I think it actually kind of brought it back again. You know, it, 
you you add enough space in between point A and point B that you kind of circle around and touch <laughs> it again in a way that you weren't otherwise able to do, which would, to me was a really interesting thing. You know, I, I, I you have to think about how do I how become how do I become more true to the data, and, and in this case, it was actually the way to become more true to the data was to get further away from it. Yeah, which it's it's hard. It's stuff that I'm you know that I'm really trying to think about and 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 yeah. I, th- I I think it's funny that we still it, it, we still believe we have this idea of a kind of true data um, you know a true data objectivity. Absolutely, and, that's a huge and, topic. Yeah, and and yeah, we should have you could have like you know let's talk about like you know the error bar and confidence intervals and you know the fact that that like we believe that we can look that we can do this in some way that that this thing that i have on a piece of paper somewhere is going to somehow be a real capital r representation of this thing is a falsity and 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 it's really comforting in a kind of this kind of modernist way you know it's like like that we could somehow do that but i just don't think we can in in, in the vast majority of cases and 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 i guess maybe one of the reasons why you know, I started with work that was more representational and, and sort of ended up in, in, in somewhere that was more abstract is that I actually think that it's kind of more true to, to the, to the, to this, to our systems, these systems and our relationships to them than, than it is to sort of lie to yourself about some exactitude that doesn't exist. And it's, I, Errol Morris is one of my favorite people and, 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 you know, he, he's done a lot of writing in his essays in the New York Times over the last few years about, about um, about photographs and and objectivity and subjectivity, mm-hmm. and you know, and this idea that every photograph by default is a lie. You know, I just I love that, and I I, I use it when I'm talking to my students. You know, it's like every data visualization and by default is a lie, and 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 so if we can get around that, we can start to have a better conversation than start it than if we than if we sort of focus on how do we make the photo not a lie because we can't do that. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah, but, you know, at the same time, it's only the blind trust into the device or the apparatus, you know, that's the problem. And if you overcome that and, and use it as a tool for yourself, like your own investigations and mm-hmm. like for truth seeking, it's suddenly so powerful. You know? And that's, I think, what right. we're all yeah. fascinated yes. with. Yeah. That now we have these tools at yeah. our disposal, like everybody, you know, all the, yeah. the great science tools and the web and stuff. And, but yeah, but that I think, yeah, the last few years totally led to this data positive. You know, I, would, just, I mean, I, yeah, I, would get, I would get the word truth out of there entirely myself, yeah. you know. <laughs> I would say, uh, I would say that, you know, a data visualization is not is not a, I like the idea, you know, data visualization is not a truth. It's an instrument towards truth, right, but I right. might replace the word truth with understanding. Mm-hmm. You know, a data visualization is not in itself an understanding, but it's an instrument towards an understanding. Yeah, but then the process but comes back and you use for, it to construct uh, knowledge or to, to, to get yeah. better impressions of the world as you see it. Which is actually true for the highest level of objectivity that we reach, that is science, right? Even science itself is not, is not necessarily the truth, right? It's just one way to look at some phenomenon or whatever, right? Right. I mean, theories yeah. get get created and then discarded or modified or whatever, right? That's that's science, right? And that's the biggest high. I think it's the highest level of objectivity that we humans achieved so far, right? 
But I, yeah, I, 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 I agree with you entirely. I, I just, I don't think that's the cultural understanding of science. Mm. And it's certainly, <laughs> yeah. I don't think it's yeah. the understanding of most science. I mean, I mean, I mean, maybe I won't say most, but a lot of scientists, you know, that, 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 that do sort of feel like that, that it is about truth. And, 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 um, yeah, I mean, it's, 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 it's the best scientists that, that I work, that you work with are really, really, really aware of the ambiguity right. and, 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 and the uncertainty and all of these things. And, and they're actually, I think the best ones really love it. They love yeah, that idea. Exactly. There's something yeah, that, that they can really embrace. And, and I, I think that's something that, that, that at, at the, at the, highest level of science, you know, great scientists and, 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 and great artists have in common, you know, is this kind of love of, of, of the, un, the unknowable. <laughs> yeah. yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah. And, and yeah, you're absolutely yeah, right. Absolutely. This idealized version of the scientist, you know, in this white lab coat and you know, glasses and so like super Which precise. is similar to the idealized. Yeah, that only exists outside the sciences, you know, exactly as, <laughs> yeah. you know, the, the idealized view of the artist. Yeah, exactly. I mean, but it's, you know, that, that, that understanding around science is also something uh, relatively new. Yeah. You know, science, science took a long time to start looking at itself. Mm. You know, when we, we start to think about philosophy of science, you know, that, that, you know, is a relatively new thing. And when it started not too long ago, like, you know, just over, maybe over 50 years mm -hmm. ago, it was a really contentious thing that science would start to look at itself or that, or that, or that, or that, or that oh, that philosophers would look at science and somehow start, you, <laughs> yeah, you, know, you had the beginning of the century with Gödel and so on that, you know, that there might be things that are true and not provable. And I think there were right. quantum theory and so on. Yeah. I like where this is going. Yeah, absolutely. I like it. So now we're entering part two. <laughs> I mean, but actually, I mean, just to just to like ramble off into the into the distance for one more second is that you know that that whole girdle, you know, the the realization that there are things that are un, that are unprovable was was a really you know was a uh, it moved the ground from underneath a great number of yeah. of scientists and. And, and the ripples from that have continued to spread from mathematics to physics to biology yeah. and outward and outward and outward in every field. People sort of have, have you know, this idea that, that, that everything can be solvable has just been top, toppled. Yeah. And I, yeah. I, I sometimes feel like we're in the, I sometimes feel like we're in the last edges of that <laughs> you know, where, where this like big data has arrived and they're like, maybe this is it. Maybe we will be able to use it to, to do this thing, but it'll, eventually it'll just topple as well. And, 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 you know, it's crazy to think that it took like 110 years, but, but it, and that, and then that, that wave is still going. I mean, these things yeah. take a while to sift in. I mean, <laughs> Yeah, but yeah, but I absolutely agree. I think the, the this this new synthesis of all these disciplines and what you mentioned before the collaborations with the humanist journalists and and within that such an ecosystem, science can be super powerful. It's it's more the problem like if you think that's the only method that counts. Trouble. Yeah, great stuff, Chair. I like that. 
<laughs> well, now let's get back to yeah, reality, yeah. right? Yeah, it's I like think we need to wrap it up soon. Barstool, barstool philosophers yeah, yeah. Uh, here. <laughs> what are you looking forward yeah. to? Uh, anything up? I mean, IO Festival is coming up. You forgot to mention that's one of your other activities. You're co-organizer of the IO Festival. Right, yeah. Yeah, which is, uh, I think, going to be amazing this year. We're, we, we have a, a really amazing group of speakers. I mean, as always, I think. Um, you know, we're really lucky that that the people that we invite to this thing tend to say yes. Um, and so we, we've kind of gone a little further afield than we normal, normally do this year. And I think it's going to work. Who knows? We'll see what happens. Um, but, the, you know, the most exciting thing is that tomorrow morning I'm getting on a plane to go to L.A. That's not the exciting part. Ooh. And then after that, I'm going um, I'm going to um Cocodry, Louisiana, where I'll get on a boat and then, which will take me to a bigger boat called the RV Atlantis, which is the mothership for um, a submersible called Alvin, which is the uh, uh, deepest diving man, second deepest diving man submersible in the world. <laughs> and uh, I'm going to be getting in there and going to the bottom of the ocean. Yeah. Wow. wow. That's so crazy. So, uh, How deep? How deep? Yeah. Um, I'm not sure. It depends on which dive I go on. There, There's two depths of dives on this cruise. So, uh, um, the first set of dives is around 950 meters and the second one is around 2,400 meters. Wow. So one of the wow. two, either way, deep enough to be scared. Yeah, absolutely. It's but crazy. yeah, but actually, you know, really, 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 really related to our conversation because I had an email from Cindy Lee Vandover, who's the, um, she's the chief, the head scientist on this, on this cruise. And, um, she wants to bring an artist in residence on board to to um, to help kind of bridge this gap between between science and art and and you know she said something really really amazing which I'm totally going to paraphrase because I don't have my email open but the 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 the, the depths the, the the deep ocean as she calls it is like this really important ecosystem to the world but we have no understanding of it mm -hmm. and 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 thus far our attempts at understanding have all been through the lens of science and so what does it mean to sort of try to add to that understanding through the arts right, right. and so nice. that's going to be kind of my gigantic role is to try to try to think about some ways that we can capture that and so um and using using so alvin col collects video and and still images and sensor data about about a um, a terabyte of data per dive, wow. and then over the over the the length of the two week um, uh, cruise, there's another uh, about four terabytes of sensor data that are collected by the boat as well as an unmanned submarine called Sentry. And so, mm -hmm. so this is like a you know it's a great challenge and kind of exactly what I like, which is like how do we take this gigantic set of data and make some sense of it. And, and and there's also you know Alvin's been around for about 50 years, almost exactly 50 years. So there's 50 years of history with this submersible, and 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 so the 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 things that I'm thinking about are like how do we tie those things together? How do I tie together my own personal human experience mm -hmm. with going in a seven foot titanium sphere to the bottom of the ocean? And then and then you know how do I and but how do you also connect that to the to the humans on board, to the humans who've been in the submarine before, to the people who are who are, you know, maybe engaged with or not engaged with this type of subject. So it's pretty exciting. Wow. Yeah. And uh, wow, so you great. go there and do you know if, will, will, will you, will it be more like 
do you have a direction yet or are you like super open and just see how you synthesize all of that in the end? You know, I try, I try not to get a direction on these things. I think if anything that, 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 um, historically I've been taught is that, um, is that better ideas come a little bit later, you know, mm -hmm. and, and it's, but I have an idea of what this is going to be look, look is going to be like. And if I base my, my concept on that, then I'm kind of doing a disservice to the actual experience. And so, so I'm not thinking about it very much. I, you know, I've been doing a lot of research and doing some visualization to help me understand that research. <laughs> um, uh, and, and I'll be doing some visualization on board and, 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 um, but it's, yeah, it's been actually really great. They invited me with relatively little notice. And so, um, We kind of agreed that this this year is expedition would be a little bit of a uh, you know get the feelers out and sort of understand what might be possible and then hopefully next year I'd be able to do something a little more grand. Cool, sounds really good. Yeah, I'll be sounds posting. Great. I'll be posting. I'll be writing for the National Geographic Explorers blog mm -hmm. um, next week while I'm on board like a and, travel and posting or some stuff. Yeah, you know, just posting some little little sketches and 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 obviously I'll I'll try to tweet and instagram when i can <laughs> although apparently the internet connection is not particularly great on the boat yeah especially on the sea <laughs> i'll be I, i don't know if it'll be the world's deepest selfie but i'm gonna try yeah <laughs> you should you, yeah if, i was just if thinking, you want to add like, a location yeah break some GP, gps records or something yeah like yeah, deepest yeah. point ever tweeted from or yeah i want you to add a little um a little location for selfie city <laughs> yeah you know? yeah Bottom of the ocean. See, one it'll photo. Just be one, it'll just be one selfie. It'll just be me. Yeah. It's, what do these selfies have in common? Well, <laughs> I like that. Cool. Great. Great having you on. I think we need to wrap it up. Otherwise, people. Are... Yeah, I think we could talk forever. Yeah, thanks, thanks we could talk lot, forever. Guys. Yeah, <laughs> that, that was super interesting. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Thanks so okay. much. Okay. Thanks a lot, Jerry. Great having you on. Bye. Bye-bye. Great having you here. Bye. Thanks. Bye-bye.